This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Bankowski. Thanks so much for joining me. With the FDA approval of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine, Connecticut is set for what Governor Ned Lamont called Thursday a new spring. But before we get there, we've got a lot of work to do. Neighboring New York has said they'll shut down indoor dining on Monday in an attempt to slow the rapid spread of the disease, which has spiked positivity rates, hospitalizations, and deaths around the country. Lamont has so far resisted calls by many doctors to do the same and shut down those restaurants. In Connecticut, one in 700 residents has died from COVID, and hundreds of businesses have been forced to close, probably for good. Physicians are concerned about the hospital system becoming overwhelmed. So what does our road ahead look like? We gathered three experts on Wednesday on Zoom to take questions from our Mirror audience. Howard Foreman is director of the Healthcare Management Program at Yale School of Public Health and a mentor to some of the nation's leading healthcare experts and leaders. Takesha Everett is executive director of Health Equity Solutions, a public health professor at Yale and a member of the governor's COVID-19 vaccine advisory group. And Matthew Spiegel is a finance professor at Yale and a co-author of a recent study on which COVID restrictions have proven most effective and which ones haven't. I started with Dr. Foreman, who had joined me on the podcast early in the pandemic when he was very critical of the federal response. I asked him if he thought this whole pandemic had turned out worse than he'd feared. Oh, it's turned out much worse. I mean, I think that uh, at the beginning, I was naively believing that both the federal response would eventually become coordinated and that we would have testing capacity that would be many multiples of what we got to now. And that not only would we have that testing capacity, but we would be able to deliver results in a very timely and accurate way. We failed on so many of those levels. Um, And we've also obviously failed in messaging. Uh, Some of that is due to a lack of understanding of the science at the time. We were not consistent about our messaging with masks. That was partly on the public health and, and medicine profession, where we were uncertain very, very early on about the role and value of masking. Um, And then later on, it became more of a polarizing political issue where uh, our leadership at the state and federal level seemed to become uh, deeply divided about how they would message such seemingly simple issues like social distancing and masking, such that ultimately uh, it has become much more of a political issue than it ever should have become. How do you grade, Howard, the state's response so far to the COVID crisis? So at the beginning, it was horrible, and it was horrible for the same reasons that Italy and New York and Massachusetts were horrible. We were sort of uh, hit unaware by the time we even knew we had cases. We basically had uh, enormous numbers of dead uh, and a lot of people in the hospital. That was a failure that was made worse by the lack of testing Um, and and federal coordination at that time. And I think since that time, I think we've done much better, uh, but it's very, very difficult because even now, probably one of the best things that we we could be counting on would be, again, federal coordination and leadership and uh, funds available to close bars without uh, putting uh, small business owners out of business. And those things are lacking at this moment, and that has made it much more difficult. So we're still doing rather poorly. If I'd have to give a grade for how we're doing in the region right now, we're somewhere in the B-minus range or C-plus range. But 
a lot of that is, is limited by what um, the resources we have available to us. And let me ask you one more question on that. You mentioned the region. Governor Lamont has talked about coordinating with neighboring states. At various times throughout this year, there's been more coordination or less coordination. How important do you think coordination between states is at this moment? Probably a lot less important than it was earlier on because there's so much community spread everywhere that no longer can you restrict free flow of individuals because every place is affected. Uh, you know, in June, July, and August, when the, the Northeast was down to very, very low prevalence rates, there was a strong impetus to sort of limit flow of people in from other areas. Now that impetus is, is far reduced. Takesha, let me ask you before we get into some details here, what are the issues or the concerns that you have that are most top of mind? At Health Equity Solutions, we're still monitoring and looking at this from an equity standpoint, and particularly from a racial and ethnic perspective. Uh, when Howard was talking about the grading early on of the state's response, we were not getting data in real time on race and ethnic populations and the impact that was happening. That has changed since then, but we're only getting it on contraction and death, but not on hospitalizations and trying to better understand what's happening there. Are we sending people of color home? with the virus into uh, particular areas where they could further exacerbate exposure at rates higher than we are with whites. These are questions we're still having. I think 2020 has put in our heads a different way of who we thought about essential workers, who they are and what that means. And we know that people of color are overrepresented in retail settings. And so we're still looking at not only the small business impact, but what are we doing around vaccination and PPE, et cetera, et cetera for people who are those frontline essential workers who are keeping our economy going and keeping the necessary tools that we need to survive during this pandemic. So we're really concerned and obviously vaccine, like the, the vaccine is a big part of the equity conversation right now. Yeah. And I want to get uh, deep into that conversation because there's so many questions about, uh, about the vaccine and, and how people feel about it. I want to ask you though, for a second about those essential workers, that designation has become so important and so amorphous over the the course of this year, it's going to matter who gets the vaccine when, and that is going to have an awful lot to do with the overall spread of the disease. It's also going to have to do with whether or not we're tackling some of these inequity issues. Yeah, so structural racism has been a thing that we knew existed before the pandemic, but the pandemic has really highlighted for us the deep impacts of it. We can't talk about um, the issue of exposure for risk of spreading the, the virus and or poor outcomes without recognizing how racism throughout the historical context and contemporary context of structural and institutional racism has dictated what our communities look like, has dictated what op job opportunities people have, where they work and where they don't. So one of the things that when you're looking at it from uh, the, the, the history and the race scholar perspective, you realize the connection here is that people of color have over, been overrepresented in lower wage, retail settings, or frontline positions, even in the hospital setting, for, that put them at greater risk for exposure. And when you tie that to the historical chronic conditions challenges because of lack of lack of either access to healthcare or lack of necessary things within communities where people of color have lived and have grown, even if they've now moved outside of those communities, you see the, the underlying chronic conditions that make an actual survival 
from uh, the from contracting the virus very difficult. So all of these things are coming to light right now. Matthew, how about you? What is it you're looking at right now in the midst of this pandemic that's either troubling you or or most interesting you at this point? I'd say that some of the things I find troubling is that the types of shutdowns we're seeing across a lot of states are not consistent with policies that would actually mitigate how many people are killed. You know, there's, I think we could all agree that what we don't want to do is close down business sectors or restrict business sectors to a point where it's not doing any good, right? And I think that what's troubling me is, is I think that, you know, at the beginning, it made sense. You know, different communities and different states closed down different sectors of their economy, depending on how they felt that, you know, both the damage done to the local economy and, and the possible health of the people. And, you know, from an academic point of view, this isn't good, but gave us a really rich database of, of different policies and we could see the effects. And I think at this point, it's time to start paying attention to what policies, you know, did and did not mitigate the fatality rate. Well, let's talk about some of those policies, some of the things that you that you put into your study. Maybe you can give us an outline of things you learned that have worked, that will work, and things that we could do that don't work at all. I think the, the clearest thing we found throughout the paper was that mask mandates work. Now, uh, interestingly, masks recommendations did not. <laughs> So just telling everybody, we think you ought to wear a mask sometimes, didn't actually do any good, you had to mandate them. Having said that, the mandates that we primarily had in our study, because we, we ended the study in September, were primarily you know, mandates to wear a mask indoors in a retail setting, essentially, right? You know, if you go to the barber, you go to a grocery store, the current set of mask mandates for like, you know, Massachusetts, where basically if you read the rule literally, walking in the woods alone requires you to have a mask, that seems pointless. And to be honest, I mean, I guess Howard Furman would be better at this, but you know, at least from my perspective, it's counterproductive because if, if you see a rule, if I see a rule that seems like completely insane, I'm less likely to follow it. So, you know, that, that's something. So I think the mask mandate idea is a good idea. You know, I can't, I can't say I went into the study thinking that, that that would be true. I would have thought recommendations would be good enough. Turned out not to be true. Some of the other things uh, that turned out to help were, were restaurant closures. We're, we're looking at that in uh, more detail now, trying to see if partial closures were, were good enough. Uh, we have some evidence, we have some preliminary results that that, that might be true. Uh, the, the other thing that helped was closing down the kinds of businesses that typically got open in like phase two of the reopenings. So like movie theaters, bowling alleys, that kind of stuff it turned out that that was also pretty consistent at reducing the, the spread. But then we also found things that were either unhelpful or counterproductive. Now, it turns out bars don't help. <laughs> you close down bars, doesn't do you any good. We can all speculate as to why, why that is. I think it's not hard to come up with a story as to how closing a bar completely uh, creates rather poor incentives for gatherings and apartments. <laughs> But, you know, something's going on because we're not getting anything there, whereas we found it for restaurants. But I, I just want to stop you here because that finding really contradicts almost directly everything that the governor has said and many other state officials, federal officials have, have said when they've talked about this. They say bars are the big problem, and you don't find that at all, Matthew. Well, you know, bars could be a big problem, and it's easy to detect 
spreads in bars, right? So let's say someone infects 20 people in a bar or something. It's probably easy to pin that down and say, okay, it's bars a problem. On the other hand, if bars induce, closing bars induce young people to throw apartment parties, that gets turned into a spread, an indoor type spread event, right? It's not, it's not a bar because it's an apartment, but they're basically hosting a big cocktail party. And we've seen tons of that. Um, there's a paper by Jeffrey Harris at MIT looking at the Wisconsin uh, viral explosion they had there in the, in the semester. And he finds evidence that it wasn't one bar, it was bar hopping, essentially. Like you look at a cluster of bars and that generated a lot of the, the infections. So, you know, if you really close everything down, that cluster of bars becomes a cluster of dorm rooms and potentially. And so, you know, we, we get to make rules like we can close bars down, but you can't close people. You can't you can't close people's apartments down. And that that could be the problem. So we got to be careful, you know, just because a rule looks good in some sense and, you know, as a standalone entity, we have to be careful about the way humans behave in response to that. In this case, it looks like they offset it. Well, and so Howard Foreman, let me put that to you, because on one hand, it is directly contradictory to what the the governor has said. He's basically said bars have to close. If you're going to open up and serve alcohol at all, even if you were previously a bar, if you serve food and become a quote unquote restaurant, then you can still stay open. It's upset many people in the bar community and in the restaurant community because they don't think that it's a very good rule. Matthew, on one hand, is saying that's not actually effective. But on the other hand, it's exactly consistent with what the governor is saying, which is that those social interactions, the kinds that happen in dorm rooms or maybe that happen around the Thanksgiving table, that's actually where we're seeing an awful lot of the transmission. Uh, Flesh that out for us a little bit, Howard, from what you know. Look, uh, you know, one of the things that I said from the beginning about this, and it harkens back to the HIV AIDS epidemic, is that we must remain humble about what we know and what we don't know. Um, I always show people my textbook from 1984, uh, my pathology textbook, which basically says that they think that AIDS is caused by some combination of environmental, genetic, and probably viral factors. Um, That was already a few years into the epidemic. Uh, Here we are uh, nine, ten months in, and we know a lot, and, and people like Matthew uh, and other investigators have done tremendous work in helping us understand things better. I still think that the tra- we know a lot about transmission now that we didn't know 10 months ago, and, and droplets and aerosol are probably both contributing. And probably if I'm expelling air uh, forcefully out of my mouth in an unmasked way and you're standing in front of me, that's probably a, a, a high likelihood of transmitting if I'm currently infectious. Um, but at the same time, bars are not bars all the time, right? So we, we know from South Korea that you know one of the worst super spreading events was one gentleman going bar hopping in the Itawan region of Seoul, South Korea, where he uh, ultimately led to the infection of, I think, a couple of hundred people. One person did that. Uh, That was at a club. And and they don't call it a bar. They called it a club. And and I think that's the distinction is that you're in a place with loud music. You're speaking loudly without a mask on your face. People are close to you so they can hear you. That's how it spreads. Uh, People have said, like, our restaurants are spreading opportunity. If I'm at a table at a restaurant with my own family, with my own pod, 
um, it's probably safe because we're going to be with each other no matter where we are. But if I'm at a restaurant with a group of people that I might not know and I may be shouting or maybe loud there, I think it's a different event. And, and so much of what we're learning right now is like, how do we reduce the number of, of um, those types of interactions with other people so that we're not continuously spreading it? If I limit my interactions to just my household, the worst I can do is infect my household. Uh, if I have my interactions with a group of 100 people through both work, social, and household interactions, then it becomes that much larger. So then what do you make of, of the letter that was sent by a number of physicians to the governor saying basically it's time to close down indoor restaurants, it's time to close down gyms and health clubs right now if you want to stop the spread? Right. So this is challenging. And I, I'm not sure whether I've signed on to any of those letters, but I've signed on to maybe a, a tiny fraction of these. I've seen a lot of them and I've been of mixed feelings about them because on the one hand, our hospitals are filling up. Uh, we're at 64 percent of um, our, our prior peak, I think, right now for the state. Uh, and it's growing. It's not growing as fast as New York State is growing, but it's growing. And we already have such an overcrowded emergency room. I worked, uh, my last shift was on Monday evening, uh, and it's overcrowded. It's overcrowded to a degree that I've rarely ever seen, and that's what the hospital doing everything it can to get people out. I think we discharged 36 COVID patients last night or over the last 24 hours alone. So we're doing everything we can. And so you start to say, what can you do to reduce spread even if the uh, yield is low, what are you going to do at this point? And so you can emphasize masking, you can emphasize uh, social distancing and hygienic measures as much as you can, but then you're starting to look at other things, and those other things are closing down anything that involves congregating of individuals that are outside of their own household, and then you're also looking at basically telling people hunker down. Okay, so we're, we're talking about having people hunker down, and this would be yet another big hunkering down after one that happened earlier this year and heading into the winter, that's going to be a very hard thing. Part of what Matthew's saying, part of what Howard's saying is, is the way that people are reacting to some of the mandates, the way that they're reacting to availability of vaccines, say, actually has an awful lot to do with how this is going to go. If people believe that wearing masks makes sense, if people believe that taking a vaccine will make sense for them, then we may be able to bend this back and start to head in the right direction. But if people don't believe, then we're not necessarily going to get the results we want. In, in some of the work that you're doing, how important is that? Actually having people understand the reality of the numbers, the reality of the science here. So, John, I think that's where the crux of this comes to. It's about communication. And it's about communication that does three things. Instills trust, gives people the faith that what is they're being told is the right thing, and allows them agency. And I think that's the biggest challenge we have had is being truthful about what we know and what we don't know, being clear and explaining why something needs to happen. It's not enough to say, close the bars, don't go to the bars stay home, isolate. It's literally needing to understand the story about what happened in Korea. One person can do this to 100 people. If you are asymptomatic, do not know you have it and are therefore spreading the virus. Making that very clear distinction from trusted voices that people understand and believe in is critical. I believe that the, what Matthew's study is showing and saying that mandates work is because mandates are clear. Wear a mask. It's very clear. When we go back and forth with 
do six feet apart, no 14 apart, no wear a mask indoors, no wear the mask outdoors. No, we can't be in restaurants. Yes, we can 25%. Now let's go 75. You run the risk of people who are very, we're very social creatures as humans. So we want to be with people. We want to be able to engage. You run the risk of people saying, well, forget it. It's either I'm going to get it or I'm not going to get it. It's nothing that I can do about it because no one's clear. So I'm going to do what I want to do. Or you run the risk of going into falling into old habits of what life was like before a mask. So I think it's really important that we communicate clearly what's at risk, clearly what people need to do, and honestly say, we give you the best information we have at the moment that we have, and that this is ever evolving and growing and we're learning. There are a lot of people who were not alive in the 80s to know what we learned from the HIV epidemic and how much we've done since then. We've got to be able to convey that information in a way that makes sense to people on coronavirus. Teresa's asking, are gyms and health clubs found to be spreaders? So I'll go. So there, there are only three areas I didn't talk about before that we, we looked at. One was retail, which is like the phase one reopening things. Turned out closing that stuff is counterproductive. Uh, that, that actually seemed to increase the spread. Again, you know, you might be encouraging people who might be going out and engaging time away from people at a retail establishment, then are crowding into a, an apartment or something. The other thing uh, we, we looked at were uh, gyms and spas. And sort of interesting, gyms turned out to be useful to close down, which I was quite surprised at. Um, and spas were counterproductive, which I was stunned. <laughs> if would have bet ex ante that it would be the opposite. Um, so the, I, I'll tell you, the only thing I can think of is that the problem with the with the gym is right. You're, you're working out and it's indoors, and you know, I met, that's got to be ideal for the spread here. And in a spa or other, uh, you know, salon or something like that, you're basically one on one with someone, and you have a mask, and they have a mask because we have these very strict rules about that. And you know, maybe that that turns out, you know, good ventilation and all the rest, and. It, it's good enough. I mean, there was that case that was we got a lot of press, right? There was somebody, a couple of beauticians or something who had COVID and they had like 140 plus clients. And none of them got it, but everybody had a mask. So we, we're very good at, at apparently enforcing mask requirements from what I can tell in those kinds of establishments, maybe it was working, you know? So telling people you can't go means they do it at home or something with their friends and then they spread it. Go figure. Well, and this is what makes uh, policymaking around this so in- incredibly difficult. Uh, Laura has a question. Howard Foreman said it's probably safe to eat at a restaurant if you're eating with your family, but it doesn't address the issue of ventilation. It wouldn't be safe if the family's in a location in the restaurant where the ventilation causes a plume to, pla- to pass over the table. All right. So, Howard, yeah, it's, I mean, restaurants are tricky places because every restaurant is set up differently. And, and somebody else is asking here, what if I'm in my pod and I'm at a table near a group of people who have some problems and maybe I get infection through them? Yeah, so early on, there was a, a famous study published like super early in February or March that literally showed the ventilation flow. I think it was in China, but if not, it was definitely South Korea, where they showed the ventilation flow in a particular restaurant and showed that the actual airflow was transmitting the virus from table to table. They could they did such great contact tracing that they could show you who was the index case and who it went to inside that restaurant, which was amazing. 
I do think these are all real issues. And just to be clear about what I was saying in terms of the restaurant, I'm saying it's safer for a family to be sitting with themselves than if you're congregating with other people. Um, I have been pretty consistent about thinking that closing that closing anything that congregates indoors at this point helps, notwithstanding the fact that there's now the evidence that Matthew speaks to and others who have said that, you know, that's maybe going too far because you're just forcing people to do the same thing in their own apartment, maybe with the same group of individuals. You know, I do think airflow matters. It's why outdoor is so much better than indoor, and it's why we have distancing between tables. It's why um, even people that have created these sort of indoor-outdoor spaces where they're completely uh, enclosed are probably still better than true indoor places because there's just more free flow of air. We don't know enough. And I don't want to tell people that if you go to a restaurant and stay seated with your own family and you're a distance away that you're 100% safe. You're, You're not, but probably safer than if you're crowded with other individuals. I, I do want to turn quickly, though, to the, the burgeoning story of vaccines coming. I'm wondering, Takesha, as a, as a member of the vaccine advisory group, what exactly your work is there and what you know about how we're going to start to get vaccines over the course of the next several weeks and next several months? Sure. So I'm on the entire, I'm in the on the full vaccine advisory group, and our job in general is to look at the recommendations that are coming from the ACIP at the CDC and to uh, relay recommendations to the governor that are representative of the various communities, backgrounds, professions that we represent. I specifically sit on the allocation subcommittee and it's no surprise, you can see it in the background. My ideas of what I'm coming towards this is thinking about how are we doing this equitably what is the impact going to be on the community? And what are the community saying about their concerns related to this? So I am, um, I don't want to say inundated because typically we say that in a negative way. I am pleasantly receiving a lot of communication from various community members and people about their questions related to the vaccine, their hesitancies related to it, where that actually is coming from, whether they will or will not take the vaccine, what would concern, what would they do? But going back to the work of the, the allocation subcommittee, we are currently, we have the information that has been shared with you all. I think, again, in short order, we're going to have about 16 trays, which I believe is a little shy of 16,000 doses. And that's going to be distributed through the hospitals because the hospitals have the storage that's necessary to keep the, uh, the vaccine stable. And then there's going to be an allocation process throughout that. The ACIP, which is an acronym I'm using because I cannot remember what it stands for, but it's the Coronavirus Advisory Group for the CDC, has indicated that healthcare workers should be in the first wave of who gets that vaccine. And here in Connecticut, what we're doing is looking at, we've requested the data about the virus contraction and deaths to really better understand how do we prioritize even within that based on our data in Connecticut, who should get the vaccine. And um, we've also added and expanded before ACIP talked about long-term care facilities, we had added that to the 1A category as well. So we're talking about people who are in uh, elderly care facilities, people who are frontline workers who are going to need to get the vaccine first. This is all coming from CDC and, and federal guidelines, but each state gets a chance to essentially assess these guidelines themselves. Once you get through this first group of people who need the vaccine, 
there have been so many questions, Takesha, about who's next. Are teachers in that next group of people? Because we want teachers to be able to safely teach children. Do we have more people that we designate as essential workers who maybe are grocery store workers? We want to keep them open, which also maybe helps us to get to some of the equity issues you've you've talked about. Or do we go someplace else? So every every iteration of this is growing and changing. So there'll be more recommendations from ACIP on exactly who should be in every next phase of this. But you are correct. Every state will have the opportunity to evaluate those recommendations and make decisions that are best for their state. And each governor is taking into their own consideration how that process looks. In Connecticut, the governor has designated the advisory group to provide recommendations. He's listening to us. He's definitely um, engaging through uh, the Department of Public Health Commissioner, Deidre Gifford, who's chairing our uh, subcommittee along with Dr. Reginald Eady. He's listening to that and putting that into play, but ultimately he has the responsibility of how we're going to simultaneously control and contain this to get herd immunity in the state and keep our economy going. So there might be variation from what the federal recommendations are simultaneously. We may be following them in short in this inexact order. I think this is a challenging question around the equity perspective of this because from the from my perspective sitting on this, we need to be driven about what we need in our state in order for the residents in our state to be healthy and to survive this and to also have our economy in our state work. So I, on one hand, applaud the fact that we have local ability to make differences in what's being recommended from federal, but at the same time can understand how that's a, you, you got a 50 state strategy plus the District of Columbia that's not going to well, bode well for these United States altogether. Yeah, and I've got some more questions about vaccine distribution. I want to come back to you in a second. Howard, very quickly, though, this 50-state solution, you you and I talked earlier this year about the, the necessity of a federal government that actually has a clear plan for communication, a clear plan for everything from vaccine distribution to mask mandates. The federal government, let's just say, hasn't done that so far. So instead, what we have is a 50-state solution in which every state comes up with its own plan. Takeshi's just laid out some of the the pros and the cons of that. What do you see as some of the the potential roadblocks in a a 50-state solution in which Connecticut and Massachusetts and New York, say, all have very different ways of handling this? Look, this is uh, at the core of federalism. At least this time, we have intermediaries that are functioning in in a federal way. Uh, We have a a logistic network that presumably is going to deliver it to every state, unlike what we did with testing. We're distributing it uh, on a population basis, at least at the beginning, which, by the way, is not necessarily equitable because we know that disproportionate impact on communities of color and other communities uh, are also disproportionate by states. So so distributing on a population basis is probably not the best way. Um, Hoping that that will get modified as time goes on. Uh, It is important to point out that what we're dealing with is not so much an approval of the vaccine, but an emergency use authorization of the vaccine. So there is more work that the federal government has to do in order to help us get to uh, confidence and trust in the vaccine. Uh, There's a lot of work that needs to be done, and that mostly is going to occur at the state level, but it requires the federal government to deserve trust 
think the good news is, is that we have large trials that are continuing to accrue data. And in the interest of disclosure, I'm in the Pfizer trial. So data is being collected on me on a regular basis. That is going to help us make better decisions in a few more months, because right now I can say that there's no short-term side effects that should worry anybody because we have roughly six or eight months of experience from phase one, phase two, and phase three trials. But it'll be so much better in three and six more months where we can say so much more. We know, for instance, in the Pfizer trial, there are 23 pregnancies at this point. Those are data points that are going to be very comforting to people to hear that there's no adverse impact on pregnancies. And and there is no adverse impact on pregnancies so far. Each one of these things is important. We've only tested this down to, I think, the age of 12 or 13 right now. We're going to have to go down a lot lower than that. Uh, We're going to have to look at other subgroups. That information is going to help us be able to say to people confidently, this is a safe and highly, highly, highly effective vaccine that even if you're not worried about your own life, you're going to protect your grandparents' life, your cousin's life, and your coworkers' life. Uh, before we get to some more vaccine questions, I actually want to get to a question from Joan that I want to put to Matthew here. Uh, and this is, Matthew, I'm sure that you're going to be getting a lot of these questions. All three of you will be getting a lot of these questions over the course of the next couple of days. So Joan asks, uh, if one is quarantined, no symptoms, travels in the family car from New York and tests negative, is it safe to have an eight-person gathering for Christmas? Um, and she goes into some detail about, you know, having sold the house since the last Christmas here, and we want to get together with with family. We're going to wear masks. Given some of what you studied, what are you thinking about this upcoming holiday season and people's desire to get together in family units? It's hard to know what's going to work with when you when you tell people like you tell people no gathering for Christmas. You're you're also likely to get ignored. Right. So we, we do need to, you know, the, I think the health professionals and I'm not one need to come up with the, come up with some intermediary here. It says, OK, look, here's the deal. Try to do this, this and this. It's not it's not risk free. Like Howard earlier said, you know, this is not risk free going to a restaurant by doing this, this and this. But it's less risky. Right. Maybe the health professional, you know, as the health professional, you know, this is just now I'm just speaking as a citizen. If I was advised, I'd say come up with a set of rules that people can follow and don't just tell no Thanksgiving, no Christmas, no, you know, if you tell no New Year's, I got to tell you, there's going to be a lot of 20 year olds out there partying with bottles of champagne on New Year's. <laughs> so you got, we can, we need something, you know, that's in, in between these things. But, the, but, but I'll just say the, the, the reason I wanted to ask you that though, is that it seems pretty clear from your study that say a mask mandate mandate works better than, you know, it's a really good idea to wear a mask. And my my concern would be that if you give people a list of 10 things you should do or not do this Christmas to make sure that grandma stays safe and that we don't have a super spreader event, that people will pick and choose or they will only listen to some of them because it doesn't have the strength that the mandate does. Well, remember the mask mandates were mostly, at the time, were mostly in, in business settings, right? You go into a grocery store. And the grocery stores and the retail stores, they enforced it, right? So you had an enforcement mechanism that was very natural. No no retail establishment, you know, boutique doesn't want to get shut down because 12 people got COVID there, right? So they enforced it. On the other hand, there's no Thanksgiving enforcer. And and so that, that's a big difference. So if you tell people, like, you're host of Thanksgiving, everybody has to wear a mask, I, I'm... 
I will bet you $1,000 right now that if we go around taking pictures of people's Thanksgiving dinners, we will find they weren't wearing masks. And if we do it for Christmas, we'll find the same thing. But if you ask me, if we, we passed, um, you know, which we did, you know, will you find people in the grocery store almost universally wearing a mask? I don't need to ask, I don't need to make a bet. I've been to grocery stores. Most people have a mask on and the grocery store enforces it. So, you know, those are not the same thing. Social settings and business settings are different. Uh, Howard Foreman, if people ask you, should I get together with my loved ones over the holidays? What do you tell them? So there's two factors here. One is the public health impact and the other is the individual family impact. Um, and I think it really, you know, what I've said to everybody, including my own family is like, we have to weigh those things. Um, you know, if, if your, if your core family unit is between the ages of 10 and 55, you can convene to some degree. You might have some public health impact from that because there may be some spreading and it may ultimately affect the community, but you're not going to kill anyone off in that unit that you're with at that moment. On the other hand, if you have a family unit that goes from 10 up to 90, you have a very serious risk going on there, particularly with the level of prevalence we have right now. And so to me, we're, we're eight, 10 weeks away from mass vaccination levels. This is a time to encourage people to really take those risks very, very seriously and to try to minimize as much as they can their contribution to community prevalence. And at the same time, think about their family, think about their relatives, think about what may happen if they inadvertently bring that virus into that family pod and spread it, as we've heard many times, to 5, 10, or 15 people within your unit. I've got a question from Kim here uh, who asks Takesha, I live in the most underserved community or one of them in New Haven, New Hallville. What would you suggest uh, could be a part of the process for communicating trust? But I think it's important for people to, um, this answer is going to be universal no matter what the community is. You need to find who are the trust keepers, the change makers, and the local community that people listen to. And you need to make sure that they have the right information. So, yeah, and not to pick on Howard, but Howard's a doctor. He could come into New Hallville and tell everybody all they want to, but if they don't know him, they're not going to listen. So Howard's time is better served by finding the pastor in the community that everybody listens to, the change agent advocate person who has been a community health worker that knows how to navigate people to social services. Get that person to understand the efficacy of the vaccine. Get that person to understand what's going on and maybe even get that person to say they themselves will take the vaccine because that's what's gonna make the difference to people who don't have that trust. The other side of it is mandates work, right? But mandates without explanation and understanding that give people agency to feel like they have choice and they have, uh, uh, again, the right for their own body to make choices for themselves are not gonna work. So we have to be very mindful when you're talking about Christmas and the holidays and getting people together and whether they can't, I think it, not giving a people list of 10 things to do is not the right thing, but making clear the statement of be mindful of the public health and individual community risk you are taking if you do it. And if you do, make sure these three things are the things you are following. Five people or less, your core individual family only. Figure out how you Zoom in a conference call, grandma and nana and everyone who's across the state, but just your core nuclear family like the number of people that's the threshold and make sure that people are not then going out 
or have been risked to exposing. These are the things that we have to be very mindful of. And when we do that, that's what builds trust. That get, that's what gets people the right thing. But we can't just have um, anyone saying it. And let me just add, you can't have just um, the government we're here to help coming in to say it when you look at New Hallville and the government hasn't been helping them all along, right? So that's really important. That's a very important thing. Um, Laura is asking regarding vaccine distribution, do elderly care facilities include assisted living? There's talk about nursing homes, congregate settings, but no specifics about what is considered a congregate setting. And some other people have asked here about um, incarceration facilities being congregate settings. Obviously, we have a very high spread rate there. What can you tell us about that, Takesha? Long-term care facilities that include assisted living and skilled nursing facilities are definitely have been moved up further into the list. So there is a lot of debate and conversation, though, about the remaining congregate settings and what that looks like. When we first looked at the uh, first recommendations from the federal from the federal side, it was blatantly clear that individuals in congregate settings who don't have opportunity to leave out of those settings, should they have exposure, were blatantly missing from the vaccination list. And so, um, and, and, and that's people who are incarcerated, that's people who live in group homes and group settings who have physical or intellectual disabilities that make it difficult for them to leave the setting that they're in. So these are definitely, uh, and, and when we, stepping back, when we're talking about incarcerated individuals, we're talking about people who are disproportionately people of color because of how our laws and history have been. So those are people who've been top of mind for me, period. Um, Howard Foreman, a, a last thought on this. When I talked to the governor last week, he was talking about you know these next four to eight weeks being very important. We're going to start to get the vaccine out there. Of course, vaccines aren't going to go to all residents of Connecticut probably until sometime in the summertime if we're if we're very very lucky. How long do you think it's going to take until we start to bend back towards something that looks like? a more normal life in our state. Yeah, I'm hoping that by the end of the summer, uh, we're going to be able to get a little bit closer to normal. I think when we get to a point where anyone who wants a vaccine will have a vaccine, uh, that is a, that's a new normal to begin with. Because right now, um, my actions influence your risk, whether I want to or not, and whether you want to or not. Once we get to a point where everybody at least has a choice to be vaccinated, we've taken care of of one piece of it. Uh, but we're going to be wearing masks around each other for quite some time. But you can imagine sports events coming back at that point. You can imagine uh, having graduations again at that point, maybe even at the beginning of the summer if things go well for us. And Connecticut is heading to a sort of uh, healthcare strain situation that we're not used to having. So we've got a long way to go. The governor is absolutely right to be concerned. And um, you know, we're all in this together and we can all do our part to save lives. It's no longer about just deferring the loss of a life. It's about saving a life and we all can do our part for it. And remember, 22% of all the people that are dying are below the age of 65. So for those people who think it's just old people that are dying, you know, we're going to have lost well over 100,000 people below the age of 65 by the time inauguration comes around. A last thing, though, given all of that and some of these very scary things that people need to take action on, Quinnipiac University puts out a national poll with thoughts on the vaccine. 61% of Americans say that they'd be willing to take it. It comes to some of the things that we were talking about earlier with Takesha. Does that get the job done, Howard? I mean, if only uh, that small a number of people 
actually say that they want to take the vaccine, let alone being able to get it to that number of people in some sort of an expeditious way? It's a trade-off between, not even a trade-off, it's two different things. It's individual immunity, it's community immunity. Uh, individual immunity with the types of vaccines we're talking right now looks really good. If we can vaccinate you, we're going to protect you. You're not relying on your neighbor to protect you. The vaccine itself, uh, both vaccines appear to be close to 100% effective at preventing severe COVID. Nobody's worried. Like if I get COVID and I have a sniffly nose, that's not a problem. If I get COVID and I have to be hospitalized, intubated, and I might die, that's a big problem. So if the vaccines are effective for that, then individual immunity is huge. Community immunity, or what we call herd immunity, may be 2022. I mean, we may not really see it until 2022, and we're going to have to keep looking out for our neighbors. That's Howard Foreman, Director of the Health Management Program at Yale School of Public Health, Takesha Everett, Executive Director of Health Equity Solutions, and Matthew Spiegel, a finance professor at Yale University. Thanks to Kyle Constable for putting together our special event, Bruce Potterman, Beth Hamilton, and Steve Busmeyer. George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson recorded our steady beats at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. Please subscribe to our podcast. You can do that wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us out. You can rate and review us on iTunes if that's where you get them. Thanks so much. You can also catch me on The Real Story with Jen Bernstein on Fox 61 this week, too. Please have a good week. I'll talk to you soon.